0: Hey, everybody, before we start, I just wanted to say that if you ever are feeling depressed, we're going to be talking about sanity and stress in RPGs. But if you're ever in a bad spot and you don't have somebody to talk to, you can always call the hotline here in the U.S. It's 1 800 273 8255. And then here in a few months, there's going to be a national number, 988, in the U.S., and that 988 number will be it'll be like nine one one for mental health. So that's something that's really good. It's coming up, but it that won't go live till I think June or July July of 2022. That's gonna go live in the US. So if it's not July yet, don't dial nine nine eight eight. Dial one 8255 And that number is also on our show notes. Okay, let's get on with the show
1: okay everybody
0: we're back for another fun-filled episode today we're going to talk about the cheery subjects of insanity and role-playing games so and, and this is brought to you by dos x. H- how do you say that carl am i saying that right dos x. dos x and i will be opening this with my firestone walker brewing company bottle opener wonder where i got that it's nice
2: i don't know Oh, probably in san antonio
0: i got a no, carl in san antonio it was a gift when i visited yeah yeah. All right. So today we have myself, Jason, and it's RPG cast. You just heard Carl Rodriguez of The Geomologist Presents. Also, have BJ Boyd of The Arcane Alienist and Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland. How's everybody doing tonight?
2: Doing good. Good to be here again. Yeah, doing great. Day is over. Time to get to gaming and talking about gaming.
3: Doing doing you know? even better than the other guys, definitely. Um, no, it's great, great to hang out and chat, uh, in the evening about uh sanity and insanity. This is,
0: this know, is Arlen's
1: first uh episode with us,
0: it, it is yeah. actually. Yeah, we don't have Joe. Um, Joe Richter of Hindsightless couldn't make the session, so he, he'll probably we're gonna have a rotating cast. I mean, there's no guarantee any of us will be here, you know, for every right. session, which is fine. the um so but yeah we're happy arlen was part of the initial conception of all this and just schedules kind of kept him out at the other episodes yeah, yeah. actually bj he was in an episode you weren't in we did a bonus unboxing episode that right. carl arlen and i were in that the listeners have heard but obviously you haven't heard yet because that has been published as a time in this recording. but we're going to ha- actually hand it over to bj to lead us off in this conversation
1: okay i uh I just wanted to, if we're, if we're going to talk about sanity and madness in role-playing games, I just felt obligated as a mental health professional to <laughs> to, to do my duty to the public to say, um, uh, I think it's important, first of all, um, to differentiate between the reality of mental illness and madness and insanity as they get used in genre tropes, particularly fantasy and horror, that kind of inform the way they they, they get... Put into use in role-playing games um and, and that is to say um you know <laughs> i think in neil degrasse tyson sometimes he'll tw- tweet something after he's watched star wars or star trek and go you know that really wouldn't happen in space and a lot of people misperceive him as kind of well we know it's a movie we don't rain on our parade and he's really just trying to let the public know that was kind of a fantastic thing that's not how how, how it really works well, i think the other thing happens too is most people get their knowledge of mental health and mental illness from television and movies. And even in movies, TV set in the real world oftentimes are over dramatized and they are full of factual errors because that's what makes for a good story. Um, and the same thing I think applies when that filters into role-playing games. So I've kind of felt compelled to kind of bring this up just as we start off just because I, you know, there's probably a lot of people who are going to be here this and go, Hey, we know, we know that this is not real. But there's going to be a subset of people who still that's going to be their primary source of understanding of mental illness, and they're going to think of these Lovecraftian ideas or these Victorian ideas um, because that's how they tend to show up in um, in role-playing games. Um, oftentimes in role-playing games, madness and and, and insanity is very is either nondescript. Like I was just looking at the five E version of insanity earlier today, and it's it sounds more like someone who's just in a state of delirium because they've had because they're intoxicated or they've been they've had an aneurysm or something it actually doesn't sound look like any actual type of mental illness that we know exists entire you know, you know it's got little pieces of stuff um so i i just wanted to put that out there that one to kind to, of to make sure that you understand that, that these are fantastic versions of madness and insanity that we find in, the, in our role-playing games they're not no it's not like they're completely dissimilar from real mental illness but Don't don't use those as a primary source for your understanding of of mental health and mental illness. And the other thing, too, is just like any other um, condition that that might be a disability, it might just be a a divergence, a neurodivergence. But uh, I I think there there are sometimes people want to fetishize atypical conditions when they make their characters. I want to play a character. I want to play a blind monk. You know, but I don't want him to suffer from the actual limitations of blindness. I want him to be daredevil. But I want to play a blind monk. Um, I uh, think I think the number one I've seen with mental health is I want to play a character with multiple personalities, and each personality has a different class. So yeah. I'm a fighter until somebody punches me in the face and then I shake my head with Suddenly I'm a magic user now. <laughs> um, so so people do gravitate to that, and it is part of the normal human experience. So I think it's completely perfectly okay to have mental illness mental health, grief, trauma, things like that in role-playing games. But I think just like any other kind of condition that in the real world is serious is just, just treat it with respect and be thoughtful. And, uh, and you never know what someone who's sitting at the table with you, what they or loved one has gone through in terms of traumatic experiences or growing up, trying to care for a relative who suffers from chronic mental illness. And that has a whole impact on the family can certainly have a profound impact on children who grow up with, a, with an, an adult in the home who suffers from mental illness, maybe a loving family, but just the stress of having a parent who's suffering from something can, can have a lot of, uh, so I, th- I think always, we just want to kind of be aware that our experience is, is an individual is our experience as an individual. And we don't know what other people at the table have gone through. So again, role-playing games kind of bring in the breadth of human experience And that's okay, but we think we just always need to be mindful of. And that may be a place you might want to use lines and veils or have that discussion in session zero. But I think a lot of us don't think of that. We may think of other things like torture, which, of course, can lead to trauma. And, I mean, there's some very well-defined things, I think, that people have talked about in the use of safety tools and lines and veils. But I don't know that if just mental illness and insanity and madness in general kind of is always on the table for people. It's not something we may not think about. So those are kind of the things I just wanted to, to, to to say to start off is to when you're going to use it, you know, treat it with respect. And when you use the mechanics that we tend to find in our games, realize those are, those are not very realistic portrayals. They're, they're, they're fantastic and dramatic and they make for great storytelling, but they don't really reflect uh, a lot of the reality of, of what it's like to when well, and,
3: uh, and especially ready. I will jump in and say, I think there are also a number of kind of things that can appear in games that are not necessarily um, presented as, being directly kind of caused by or stemming from various kind of, um, uh, mental issues or, or, uh, atypical neurological functioning, um, but that can end up being something uncomfortable for people at the table based on a comparison with them. So I'm thinking especially about a lot of the various, um, spells in different games that might take away a person's ability to, um, react the way they would normally, right? Things like charm person or or any of the various kind of things within that realm can end up, I think, becoming uncomfortable, not even necessarily based on the idea of, you know, taking away another being's agency, but that sometimes you can get into a place where, oh, there's something kind of uncomfortable about this idea of, you know, the way that it feels like you've, you know, kind of fundamentally altered like the way that their thoughts work and that that can really remind people of of issues that they have experienced themselves or seen in others with regard to especially some of the the kind of difficult mental health uh related mm-hmm. issues that i'm familiar with that are
1: yeah uh, yeah yes yeah, it's this probably kind of triggering for someone who's re- dealt with real paranoia to to, <laughs> to deal with their character getting hit with a spell that causes them to be, be controlled by an external yeah source.
3: yeah something like that i'm sure is yeah terribly uncomfortable
1: um so, uh, but that those were the points i wanted to make just as we're aware of the discussion and then i think you know we, we can move on to the actual discussion itself but um
0: great and uh, so, so kind of the way we want to structure this folks just to let you know we're going to start off with the when you think of sanity and games typically modern gamers are going to think of call of cthulhu so we're initially carl's going to take the mic he's going to talk about the system in call cthulhu and delta green and we're going to discuss that a little bit and we're going to see how it goes we're, we're trying to keep these episodes to around an hour so we pro this will probably be a multi-episode discussion but j- just so you understand that as we go in but we're going to launch off with the more familiar systems like call cthulhu i think most people when they think of a sanity system Call of Cthulhu is kind of what they think of. And then we'll get into some of the more exotic things later on, maybe in a, a follow-up, even, even a follow-up podcast. So Carl, take it away.
2: Yeah. So when we think of Call of Cthulhu, we think of sanity. And so sanity is a an attribute in Call of Cthulhu. And the latest version of, of the game, it is, uh, I guess, an, actually in most of the versions of the game, it has been like a one D1, uh, a, a, based on a 1 to 100 scale, Linked to your power attribute. So when you see a see an act of violence, or you're in a helpless situation, or you see something from the mythos, you're asked by the keeper to make a sanity roll. You want to roll under to succeed. And if you fail, you lose a, a number of sanity points. And I think going actually, it's kind of interesting how it ties into like Arlen's point that he just made. I think the the break point for many players. Is that if you lose X number of sanity, in this case, if you lose five sanity, you go into something called temporary insanity. If you then uh, make your intelligence roll, it's like a weird thing that initially uh, you see the you see this mythos thing. If you if your intelligence uh, succeeds, then you realize that it is a horror or it gets to you, uh, whatever the situation may be. And when you lose five or more, you kind of lose control. And there is a table that you roll on and uh, something happens where you can either pass out or go into a bout of madness or run away, uh, et cetera. And uh, that's where you can lose control of the ability of your character to act. Um, It's even more insidious if you lose a certain amount of sanity, one fifth or more of your sanity. If you lose that in one quote unquote game day, you become indefinitely insane and no longer do you get that that sort of buffer of failing your intelligence. um, Every time you lose sanity, you have a bout of madness and then you really lose control of your character, right? So so it is pretty harsh and there are definitely ways to mitigate. And I think this discussion came about because we were talking about ways to mitigate uh, sanity in this game and then in the sort of Delta Green game, which is related, Delta Green is kind of a little bit more of the sort of on the sixth edition Call a Cthulhu uh, but it's still the same mechanic you lose five and you go temporarily insane you lose a fifth of your current sanity and you hit a break point and you gain some condition uh, whether that's a mania or a phobia or whatever and definitely when you go indefinitely insane uh, that can happen as well and um, we talked about the mitigation of it using uh, bonds and Delta Green and then you can use significant possessions or connections in call of cthulhu to deal with it but you know it's it, it does go to that what i interestingly arlen alluded to and maybe that's why we we're talking about it is because
1: you do uh, lose control of your character during that time i think i think it's interesting and maybe a point i wanted to make and forgot to say to start is is the madness as it's kind of particular in the cthulhu genre is is kind of based on how people understood mental health in Lovecraft's day, which was very archaic and, and outdated, but also mysterious. There's a mystique to it, but also I think embedded in it, there's a lot of the shame and embarrassment. It's kind of, there's some subtext there of, of, of having a a mental illness because you get locked away in an asylum or your parent, your family kind of puts you in the attic and doesn't let you go out in public <laughs> controls right, you, right. It was you and stuff that. like that. Yeah. It was like
2: sort of, but like there's the Freud, the Freudian, ideas were still controversial the young mm-hmm. the men stuff or youngian was just coming into play and and you're right and then you think of uh, movies based on that time even as late as one flew over the cuckoo's nest where mm-hmm. you know lobotomy was the way to deal with these conditions so you know and and, and i guess the the idea of sanity in call of cthulhu is not really based on sort of a real world trauma it's like you learn that you are you learn nihilistically that humans are nothing, right? It's an existential crisis, Crisis, right? existential crisis.
3: Although I think that's kind of an interesting thing that I wanted to make a point about, about calling it sanity, that to me, one of the things that is really central to um, kind of Lovecraft's concept of of horror has to do with the idea of untenable truths, essentially, right? That part of the point of this sort of Lovecraftian thing is that... uh, the, the it, what we might call the insane characters in Call of Cthulhu, they're the ones who are right, right? What they are is not that they are seeing the world kind of through a distortion, but that they're the ones who are kind of best able to recognize the truth in a way that makes them fundamentally unable anymore to engage in the kind of normal, or I say, I'm going to do air quotes, normal human society that is uh, dependent upon those distortions, right? Which I think makes the sanity thing kind of interesting because on there's a part of me that kind of dislikes it, especially when you talk about that a lot of different kind of, um, you know, mental health issues or, or things that we might call insanity as an offhand term, often it's related to the idea of, you know, distortions, right, hearing voices that aren't there or having paranoia with no kind of source or things like that, but that in this kind of Lovecraftian sense, that's actually sort of the opposite of what's happening, that the the distortions are what you're used to and the truth is what you arrive at when you run out of sanity. Um, But at the same time, I kind of like the idea that um, it sort of makes sanity very kind of um, relativistic, if that makes sense, that there isn't necessarily like a, it's sort of allows for an understanding in some ways I would say that you can have that kind of sanity doesn't mean what people say it means if that makes sense that sanity in Call of Cthulhu if you are aware of this kind of Lovecraftian thematic element around hard truths that that whenever somebody talks about sanity you might be like oh what you mean is consensus not sanity right and that's kind of an interesting thing too.
1: It's the idea that the, the characters in a Lovecraft story aren't insane. It's just everyone assumes they're insane because they've seen something no one else can see that's so incomprehensible yeah. that people are like, "You must be crazy."
2: Yeah, to say exactly. that or say
1: you experienced that you didn't. That didn't happen to you. You're, you're yeah. delusional. And then a lot of them wind up resigned to the fact of knowing this really happened, and no one believed me. <laughs> yep.
3: No <laughs> well, one yeah. else says. Well, and that also kind of gets into one of I think the really interesting things about sanity mechanics in call of cthulhu is the way that it provides a sort of system whereby characters um for lack of a better term kind of decline as a result of trauma which is something that i think a lot of rpgs um really do the opposite of right you talk about dnd right you gain experience by going on adventures and killing monsters and getting gold out of the dungeon and all of that sort of stuff and that basically your characters get more capable by going through kind of moments of harrowing violence and intense action and things like that whereas in call of cthulhu it's totally the opposite that you know yes your character will get to you know the the brp skill advancement system is Cool, but you get so little from it that you're you're definitely a character going through a Call of Cthulhu campaign is less capable by the end of their kind of experience than by the beginning in a lot of ways because even though maybe a couple of their percentiles have gone up a little bit, their you know the the mechanics of this sanity decline system have made it so that they have been kind of fundamentally changed by and are are sort of less capable of facing the horrific things that they might be called upon to face in the course of the campaign i think that's really interesting because to my understanding at least as someone who is not a mental health professional like bj but my understanding is that that's actually kind of much closer to our modern understanding of of mental health that you know trauma doesn't make people stronger right yeah suffering right isn't something that makes you a stronger person that um you know and that that call of cthulhu does a good job of kind of reflecting that in a way that you know some of the other rpgs just don't do anything like that
1: yeah well it takes a toll over time i mean people might appear tougher in the moment and, you know they sort of dissociate a little bit they cut themselves off from their feelings they get through a harrowing situation it seems like oh it toughened you up and it's really more of a you know no you just kind of white knuckled it to get through the crisis and then you know if if you don't yeah let it out at some point it's going to start eating away at you from the inside i think delta green even does a better job
2: of this too because they kind of separate out and define better the types of threats to your stability that there are so they they separate it out into violence helplessness and then the unnatural right so mm-hmm. and you do right if, if you're in one of these games in the long term uh, likely you become one of those NPCs who's riding on the walls and becomes the the you know the hook for the next group of people who are going to delve into the unnatural the violent and things that make you helpless um, yeah. I mean definitely a uh, Delta green I think probably being a more modern game, and a, I would say a more thoughtful game because they even have the consequences well defined about what happens to the people around you also um, that are, are affected by your acts of violence and your secrecy into this unknown and conspiracy. So, you know, I, I think they do. I, I agree. I mean, uh, it is kind of strange, right, that d you d advances to become more and more of a sociopath to become more of a determinist murder <laughs> hobo, right? Yeah. Um, Whereas in these other games, uh, it diminishes you, right? You're lucky if you survive. If you do survive, you're broken.
3: One, and and fundamentally you're less able to confront the the other, the unknown, whatever you wanna call it, right? That the hero's journey means you can't go on the hero's journey again is one way to put it, right? That the, the idea that the transformation prevents you from going through those experiences again because of the way that it has transformed you, right?
1: I think it's really interesting the way the last two iterations of James Bond have have addressed that in more of a modern sense. They they Mm -hmm. did it a little bit with Pierce Brosnan. I think they've also done it with, um, with uh, Daniel Craig about showing with Pierce Brosnan, they dealt with the cold war is over. And what's, what's the point of a violent Mm -hmm. guy like you in in, in the post cold world era. Mm -hmm. And then, then, with Bond, they sort of have gone and the newest Daniel Craig series, they've kind of gone into well, what does it take to make a person capable of doing these things? And, and what are the, the implications for his ability to relate to other people and have relationships?
3: Well, and, and to go off of that, I've talked about at least on a couple of discords. Um, so one of the films that came out recently was The Green Knight, which was uh, widely anticipated as an adaptation of Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, And that I, I'm not going to talk as much about that movie in particular, but that one of my comments on seeing it was that I thought that uh, Daniel Craig in Casino Royale is a Better Gawain in Gawain in the Green Knight story than Gawain in the Green Knight movie, because he goes through a essentially a very similar journey that he starts off thinking, oh, I'm I'm the badass who has been transformed through acts of violence, all that sort of stuff. And then he gets to the end and the Green Knight. The, the, the poem is very much about this idea that Gawain comes back and has been transformed in a way that he is fundamentally unable to explain and let anybody understand, right? He comes back with this belt and King Arthur says, awesome, we're going to create an order of knighthood dedicated to you because you're so cool. And we're going to call it the order of the garter. And Gawain's like, yeah, that's not really that's not really what this was about. And all the knights are like, hey, man, it's cool. We're going to have a bunch of new knights. And they're all going to be like you. And that's going to be great. And Gawain's like, guys, that's really not, like, that's not what all this was about. And he's, you know. He doesn't have the way to explain what this experience has done for him, which I think is something that actually Casino Royale does really well, that Daniel Craig's James Bond at the end has been fundamentally transformed by his experience in a way that he kind of thought he was originally and only realized that he wasn't after he had actually been transformed.
0: And, and that's one thing that actually, to, to, to bring it back to Delta Green – well, Carl was saying with the bonds, be, because with the bonds, now it's not, you, you have to kind of invoke them, or the, or the keeper's going to kind of invoke them to some degree. But the bonds can be like your connections to your family or whatever. And, you know, in a campaign, you're going to see that deteriorate as these things go on. Right, Carl?
2: Yeah, that's the idea. Like in a convention, you know, they, they're they used like, uh, you know, as meta currency to make you stay in the game. But the, the idea that the designers have, I think I believe had is that this is really showing what, how trauma affects you and the people around you. You know where, where whether it's going to be your family, your job, um, even even those that go through the trauma with you, right? So uh, I, I think it's a neat way to explore um, that aspect of of the game that we mm-hmm. like to, the game we like to play.
3: Well, I different. There not just the way that the trauma affects everybody around you but also the way that you're um fundamentally much more able to deal with um the unknown or threats or whatever you want to describe the the kind of things that might damage your sanity while you have a community supporting you right which is something that you know you talk about like um historical historical violence in in like battles and things right that part of the point is that like in ancient world battles, most of the killing happens after one side has broken their formation and is running, right? While you're still, while you've got your buddies next to you, you're relatively safe. It's when your buddies have abandoned you and you have to fight alone that you're in the most danger. I think Delta Green does a great job of doing that in a campaign where you see those, you know, relationships deteriorating and you're getting kind of gradually more and more cut off from the world and therefore less able to kind of, you know, have the community backing you up essentially as you face all these things.
1: That's an interesting reflection of, of you know, I started off talking about how we get way off from the reality of stuff, but there is some truth in these, these mechanics. And I think that's an interesting one because probably a sense of connection to other people is probably one of the best buffers against actual, um, I don't know if I, it, it, you know, it, it can prevent mental illness from developing, but for people who have or suffering from mental stress, connections to other people also is a, a key element of sort of recovering and overcoming it. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. People who who kind of get off alone and don't interact with the rest of the world and just kind of let it just kind of, they just kind of stew in their own
3: BJ. You can just
1: call me out directly if you
3: want to, <laughs> uh, but no, no, like in, all, in all seriousness, I think there is a, there's a certainly that would reflect my experience with depression related issues yeah. that part of what happens is that you, feel very alone and have very little ability to kind of understand that, you know, your community is looking out for you and wants what's best for you and all that. And that, that you know, makes it harder to ask for help, makes it harder to see, you know, the value in doing all the various things that are relevant to taking care of yourself, all of that sort of stuff. And that it's a, it's a vicious cycle, right? Because as you stop taking care of yourself and stop reaching out to friends and family and all that sort of stuff, and then you just feel worse. And it's, you know, it can be difficult to kind of figure out how to stop that spiraling without kind of reaching a crisis point at which point which you know you don't really want to but in some ways it's you know it can be necessary to have a you know a controlled crisis in order to get better is what i would describe it as sometimes right
0: Uh, and and you know these so this might be a good time to to jump to unknown armies which yeah unknown armies is around the time of delta green i'd have to look to research to see about which came out first but it does some of the same things, and and we're not going to do a, a full review of unknown armies here. It's a but it's an el- uh, darn it can't talk evolution of BRP as well to some degree. It's a deep percentile system has a lot in common. But what we have in there are you have stress tracks, and we have a number of stress tracks. You have violence, the unnatural. We understand what those are. We have helplessness, isolation, like we we're just talking about, and then we have the self which is your identity and your understanding of of yourself right and in um on an army's, the interesting thing is you have two different um, tracks for each of those things you have a hardness track which you you increase when you pass checks and you have a failed track when you fail checks and and so and we'll just go down i'll just i'm just going to read a couple examples here but like for the violence track you, you know so a sample check might be you, you know like a, a level six check might be perform an act torture right and, and there's 10 levels of that but if you for the failed notches where you fail your your check you know w- one of the results you get might be you, you get alert or uneasy every time you see blood even badly fake blood in a horror flick sometimes you had nightmares about the violence you witnessed some of the hardened things when you pass your checks your callousness shows in your every word and expression, unless you make continuous effort to suppress it. Again, the exact tone is up to you. It could be bitter and harsh, feverish and venomous, or icy cold. And, and it relies on the players to do some role-playing here, but it's got a really good examples for all these tracks. The other thing that's interesting is when your hardness tracks get filled out, you become callous. One thing that Unknown Armies does differently than Standard Call of Cthulhu, and I don't remember how Delta Green does it, but once you get past a certain point with the hardness checks you anything lower than that you don't have to take make a test for anymore so mm-hmm. like in in unknown armies at some point you're not going to have to make a check for a deep one or you're not going to have to make a check for a whatever kind of monster because as soon as you get past that you'll never take that check again but you can become callous and, and this is by passing your checks and once you begin callous you you know you you start to detach from humanity so you start going down the path of becoming a psychopath so what happens are you can no longer use your passions and passions are something you can evoke in unknown armies to flip the dice so if you're all 71 you can evoke your passions to flip it to a 17 to pass that check what you lose that is you become callous and and you become more hardened and the other thing with unknown armies and, and we haven't got into this but in this, you're you're trying to eventually ascend and become, you you know, going I guess to become like a deity. They call them aviators in here. What different? It's a lot, kind of like American Gods or, or some of these other things where you're the the closest movie that most people have seen to be Lord of Illusions uh, by Clyde Barker wh- is, is really close. Unknown Armies, like the like the street level Unknown Armies. There are different levels you can play, but if you you are going along the path, become an avatar. You are hindered by that when you become callous because you're not in touch with the other people anymore, and you're not in touch with the the global unconsciousness. Basically, it's got rules for for madness and how to you know for counseling to prevent madness. The the last thing I want to mention in here though is they do have a note where and when you have madness, they have some phobias and other things, but they intentionally leave out multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia because they. The, the writers felt that they're not handled well in games for the same kind of reasons B.J. mentioned. And schizophrenia especially just isn't really understood by most people at all or, you know, but it, I mean, it's kind of a, a B.J. could expand on that probably. But but they just felt it, you know, to the point that we can even understand what these things are. It's not even fair to try to put them in a game. And and so they intentionally leave those out. But I, I don't know any any thoughts on that.
2: I think it's really interesting. I mean, right? I think, I think that those are intentions by the designers to, to really show the shortcomings in Call of Cthulhu, for example, of the understanding back in the nineteen twenties and thirties. I mean, I don't know. I haven't looked any, if there's any modern. I know there used to be a modern and a previous, like an actual modern separate book in previous Call of do but I don't Yeah there's really Cthulhu know
0: now. Yeah there was Cthulhu now yeah, in the But late I think 80s that was also 90s. made in the
2: Yeah but that I think that was our our understanding of mental health and and this idea has really come mm-hmm. been grown exponentially in the last 20 years I would say so yeah. that's why a game like Delta Green or Unknown Armies where they have the designers really probably have life experiences like this and try to take a really deep and and conscientious the um, empathetic understanding towards these these concepts, I think that's I think it's a, a great stride for the game, you know. And it really, you know, it's it's all the advances that we've had in, in games, you know, not just with these types of, of sanity and mental health, but uh, but other things as well. I think it's kind of cool,
0: right? And it's and it's a positive step, unlike so like Palladium back in the day, they got a hold of maybe the DSM three, I don't know, but you you know, so in their insanity thing, you had like sexual deviancies, and you could you could like change your sexual orientation depending on what you rolled on the insanity table crazy and that was like in the 80s and, and i i don't think the dsm4 had that so maybe they got the dsm3 or something but but you know they had the right terms and things from one of the actual manuals but the got a manual that was so old and they didn't by not having the experience you know by putting the game it, it just made it bad you, you know and eventually palladium did pull those some of those things out of their tables but that you know was a, a poor implementation of trying to update some of the stuff, right? Where you, I think you these could, other games are doing it what better go, go ahead, BJ. Sorry, That's
1: interesting. I was going to say, you can, you can take the current edition of the DSM and you can find a large number of detractors who will argue over whether some of the things that are in there now should even be in there.
3: Right. Yeah. yeah. Or well, things that they left um, out that should be. Well, and <laughs> yeah. especially some of my understanding, a lot of it has to do with kind of um, neuro atypical elements that are classified sometimes as like mental health issues and things. And it's like, yeah. well, a lot of them do make my understanding as somebody who has a couple of different diagnoses that a lot of them do make kind of living in modern life more difficult, but that's more because nobody else understands than because they're inherently a bad thing, right. That like, you know, autism and, and, you know, autism spectrum related things are not necessarily like an inherent penalty on your ability to function as a person. They're just, a difficulty when interacting with an overwhelmingly realistic world and that that's where a lot of that comes from. And so it's kind of inappropriate in a lot of ways to, to act like, you know, there's a, a problem with autism and not a problem with sort of like the realistic world that doesn't understand. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I have another question, you know, we we're talking about call it Duty, not know armies, you know, uh, games that touch on horror. I mean, there's probably a host of other mm-hmm. horror games, right. That we could talk about, but what about in like fantasy games? Is that necessary or do we care? I mean, do we want that type of mechanic in our fantasy games to make it more realistic or do you want to keep our fantasy games, I guess, you know, free from that because it is a fantasy?
0: I, I think it depends on the game, right? So one of the things we t- we're we going to talk about, and there's a little divergent from traditional fantasy because I know you're, you're aiming like at D&D and stuff like that, but I, Arlen was going to talk about Pendragon, which I, th- I think falls in your... You know, your fantasy yeah
3: Well, and there's there's so there's actually kind of three games that I wanted to, to mention. Two of them I mentioned on Discord, and one of them I didn't think about until recently. Um, but the first one I'll start with is actually a game called Song of Swords, which is a Riddle of Steel clone um that came out. I, I say riddle of steel clone, it's its own game, but it's heavily inspired by the Riddle of Steel. You know what I mean. Um came out uh, in pdf relatively recently had a big kickstarter that um has had some issues with fulfillment stuff so uh, just to say do your own research before you necessarily go buy the pdf right away um but one of the things that they include is that one of the characters um core attributes is called grit and grit is basically a representation of how kind of jaded and detached a person is based on their experiences so grit you don't you don't ever roll to like save versus gaining more grit or anything like that the the, the game master just says hey you've done something that is you know horribly violent or or represents your detachment so you're going to go up to a higher level of grit but grit actually has a mechanical purpose which is that it allows you to ignore the pain penalties related to getting wounded wounded in combat, which is kind of a really odd thing because there's also, it's, it's a little underdeveloped, I think in the core book. So I hope they expand on it in a later book, but I think there's also meant to be a significant kind of role-playing element as well that like you can just see you know the thousand yard stare of someone who has six grit versus the you know buoyant enthusiasm of somebody who has one grit and that there's a real you know people don't want to interact with you if they know you're a stone cold killer and that sort of stuff but that it is kind of odd that the the mechanical benefit of you know, basically PTSD allows you to be, okay, well, I got stabbed, but I'm still okay because I'm going to finish this guy off before I, you know, bleed to death type thing. Um, But the other two games that I was going to talk about, one of them is uh, Pendragon. And uh, many of the different versions of Pendragon have some very similar rules here. Um, Paladin also has similar rules. I think they're changing them a little bit for sixth edition, which is to say, my understanding is that they're talking about taking um, a very similar kind of mechanical thing and changing some of the timing of it in particular. Um, so, in Pendragon, one of the things that is very relevant is the passions. So, characters have passions, which are basically things that they care about. And not just that they care about, but that they're like, you know, things you're ready to die for, basically, is your passions. And they're on a rating and it's a numerical rating, much like your skills or your traits. And so, you roll a d20 against your passion rating to call upon it in a situation where it's relevant. And if you succeed, seed, you get a pretty significant bonus to whatever you're trying to do, sometimes for one action, sometimes for a whole scene, that it, it's got some leeway, depending on the particular version of Pendragon, and kind of the game master's expectations. Um, but the idea being that this is, you know, to represent somebody kind of digging down deep and, and, you know, put in a little extra oomph into something that they really care about, um, and is really designed in particular to fit the um, inspirational literature, right? That these knights who have these kind of grand passions and larger than life personalities will be able to accomplish these kind of remarkable feats on the basis of doing something, you know, for something that they care about right so you can have passions of like love for a. A, um, a lover or a spouse, you can have passions of things like honor passions of things like loyalty to like a particular Lord, sometimes you can even have passions of like ideals or kind of religious beliefs, things like that. But one of the things, so the the way die rolling in Pain Dragon works is it's a roll under, but the price is right system. So you want to roll basically as high as you can and still under the number that is relevant in most versions of Dragon. It's a little different in some of them, but in most of them, you're trying to roll. If you got like an 11 for a skill, you want to roll an 11 or less. So if you roll more than an 11, you fail it. If you roll a 20, that's a critical failure um, or a fumble depending on the terminology of the game. In Pendragon 5.2, when you critical thumb, when you critical fail a passion role, you have about of madness. And about of madness is something that appears in the inspirational literature a number of times. Um, and specifically in Pendragon, what it is is your character is totally out of the player's control. The game master gets to decide what they do and the character is almost certainly going to either go into an absolute fit of rage and attack everything around them, or they're going to run off in whatever direction is most convenient and be sort of totally divorced from civilization for a while, and maybe sometimes a combination of both. which is a thing that definitely happens in the, the Arthurian romances, right? The characters, you know, I think it's um, Yvain, Knight of the Lion, where about the whole second half of the story involves Yvain kind of out in the woods after this bout of madness, just kind of trying to figure out what all's going on and what what he has done while he was not in control of himself, essentially. Um, in... The current version of the game, it can last for a long time. Like you can talk about losing a character for months or even years um, based on having about a menace, which is, you know, that that 20 is 5% of all roles on the D20. So that's a pretty serious um in game. I think it does a great job of creating this sense of, you know, the the inherent drama of a passion role, right? That every passion role is going to create a lot of drama because it's, you know, you might have a bout of madness, you might get a huge boost to your skills, who knows what's going to happen, but it's going to be wild. Um, But at the same time, you can see how, you know, if you were early on in an adventure and then rolled a 20 on your passion and, you know, the game master says, okay, hand over your character sheet. You need to play your younger brother for the next, you know, three months of game time while your main character goes off wandering through the woods. You can see how that would get a little annoying to certain players. So I think that for sixth edition, they're talking about um, significantly reducing the amount of time that you spend in this kind of maddened state for lack of a better term down to like roll a d6 number of days sort of thing, so that you know potentially your buddies could ride after you and and keep up with you and and bring you back to civilization as opposed to being out in the woods for months and months um but it is really i think it's a really interesting and part of what's interesting is that it represents a really particular understanding of kind of mental health issues from a historical period that we don't have a lot of right? You talk about the way that Call of Cthulhu represents kind of Lovecraft and and the 1920s version of mental health. Well, this is also sort of a, obviously it's not Lovecraft and the 1920s, but it's also sort of a sense of what mental health meant to a, a particular culture in a particular period, right? The kind of 12th to 15th century Western European audience that would have been familiar with and recognized this concept and so i think that's really interesting
1: yeah i think um i was about to say the same thing cthulhu and, and Pendragon both represent a certain genre bound in a certain time and, and i think that's probably what when you ask the question do we want to include this in a fantasy game i think it probably depends on which what fantasy genre you want to emulate if you want to emulate a conan kind of sword and sorcery probably not because because your characters are supposed to be you know, well,
3: or probably super- at least very different, right? That you yeah, would 100%. you would have it be you might have kind of like things like bouts of madness mm-hmm. or lack of control or something, but they wouldn't have any like lasting effects, probably, right? Yeah. That yeah. Conan Conan doesn't ever seem like even in the the comics like he doesn't even have like scars all over his body and you're <laughs> like what the hell how can how can yeah. this dude who always gets into sword fights be dressed in a loincloth and not have like a single scar on his chest um yeah. but the same sort of thing that i think in the story robert e howard is not super interested in the idea of conan having kind of like debilitating lasting effects from these nasty
1: or an interesting mechanic it's interesting for, though for conan would be you, the worse it is, the more you gotta spend some time carousing so that you don't build up that gold. So you have to go out and continue to be a yeah, that would be adventure. definitely a
3: way that you could handle <laughs> well, something like that.
0: Right. Although, and that goes hyperborea.
2: Well, hyperborea does have like a madness table, right? So yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it just depends. And and actually there, I mean, while Conan seemed to be the ideal overcome everything for Robert Howard, he definitely has some stories where there are some of his people, some of his, his heroes are extremely flawed and, you know, have severe issues, you know, mentally, physically um, that they have to overcome. So it wasn't like he was, you know, no,
3: I think just- that's I think that's totally true that there are definitely Howardian heroes who have more significant kind of penalties than Conan does on the basis of yeah. physical or mental he- issues. And we take some kind of more long-term effects from some of their yeah. things, right? That some of them, I think of, especially like, um, Ron McMorn and Cull, seem to me to have some pretty significant kind of ramifications from some of their adventures in terms of their, like, you know, not so much their physical health, but their kind of mental health is, is sort of on the line a couple of times.
1: Well, he describes Conan as having mighty mirth and mighty melancholies. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, that. You know. he might be a little manic depressive.
3: Hey, right? Well, he probably he probably does have. I, Howard I think it's certainly say was. that Howard had some of that and put a lot of that in Conan. Sure. Um, but that at the same time he doesn't have any of the kind of like long term trauma related issues. Right. right. That Conan yeah. Conan doesn't seem to have any issue with getting, you know, out of these dangerous situations by basically the skin of his teeth and sometimes doing some pretty horrific things that we know that in the real world, right? Conan by about age 30 should have, you know, crippling PTSD that makes it almost impossible for him to function in Aquilonia, right? So
1: probably, probably arthritis and
3: and arthritis and <laughs> all sorts of and he should have all sorts of scars sure, when he yeah. is down to his loincloth because he's gotten cut up all the time and all that sort of yeah. you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah
1: so i i think it depends on the, the genre you want to emulate mm-hmm. and i think a lot of yeah, heroic heroic yeah. fiction you know a lot of our default particularly like D&D any anymore i mean old D&D is more sword and sorcery but modern D&D is more heroic fantasy and it's meant to sort of be well, and it I gets like into your action into... adventure heroes. They 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 get beat up, but they bounce back and there's no long-term. Yeah, they just go yeah. to the tavern, have a few drinks,
2: maybe get drunk, and then they're ready to go the next day.
1: Yeah, you're into
3: a complicated issue, especially when you talk about some of the nature of like d worlds, right? Where like there's a lot of healing magic around how does that interact? It seems pretty obvious how that interacts with. Physical issues, but how does that interact with mental issues, right? Can you like cast a cure minor PTSD on somebody who's having trouble getting over their stuff? And isn't that also sort of like, I'm I'm sorry, Jason, but I'm going to say, isn't that sort of fucked up, right? That you could just like cast a spell and be like,
1: hey, your brain's better, right? I, I would say almost for an adventurer, I get run through by a spear. But I know that the cleric's going to patch me up in about fifteen seconds. Yeah, that is inherently not as traumatic as it would be for mm-hmm. one of us in the real world. Going, I'm going to die. Well, but I
3: mean, also, just like for peasants, right? The, you know, yeah. the peasants get their town raided by a whole bunch of orcs and goblins, and they put all their life savings into hiring some adventurers. But like. Do, do none of them, like, realize that they live in an inherently very dangerous world and that they should, you know, maybe spend a couple days training with spears to make sure this doesn't happen again type thing? There's a lot of that that I see in various forms of uh, D&D. Um, but I will say that I think there is another really good example to pull from if you want to do things like this, which is um, Tolkien's works and the one ring as a game that is inspired by Tolkien's works. I think, I think that Tolkien has a a really wonderfully accurate, um, accurate might not be the right word. Perhaps empathetic is a better word. Wonderfully empathetic understanding of various mental health related issues especially trauma related issues and i suspect that has something to do with his um experiences in life right even Mm -hmm. in the beginning in the opening his foreword to the lord of the rings he talks about how you know by the time he was 18 basically all of his friends had been killed in the first world war and you know what that does to a person but that um in the literature there's i think a really excellent way that um Shadow and and in the One Ring games, Shadow is something that is kind of complicated because it does have a kind of good and evil quality, but it also really has an inherent kind of traumatic quality to it too, that there is Tolkien is sort of to me, it seems getting at this idea that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of in a platonic sense, it's bad for you to do bad things, essentially, right? Because, you know, you talk about, or I guess I said platonic sense when I mean sort of a Socratic sense, right? But Socrates, Socrates is very clear that he says, you know, it's worse for the Athenians to have sentenced me to death than for me to commit suicide because they have said this because they're doing a bad thing and I'm not. And that's worse for them, even though I'm going to die. Right. And then that's a a kind of a difficult position to obviously that's a a very difficult position to be in as a real person, but that's a a important kind of philosophical position. And I think the one ring really captures Tolkien's philosophical position that shadow is something that happens both kind of externally and internally, but it is fundamentally something that cannot be avoided by heroes. Right. That they are going to encounter things that they don't understand and that are evil in a way that they have trouble with. And they're also likely to end up doing things that they may not have ever been quite as comfortable with. Right. Yeah. You talk about, you know, Frodo um, isn't in in Moria where he says, you know, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't slay him when he had the chance about Gollum. And part of Tolkien's point there, because Gandalf sort of reprimands him is that like, you know, it's complicated, right. It's not good to kill someone, even a bat, even killing something that is just as, as wretched and evil as Gollum is, not easy and it hurts you too. And that the One Ring games, I think do a great job with this, with the way that the shadow buildup works that a character over the course of their adventuring career and especially if you're playing a long campaign something like the Darkening of Mirkwood where you're going to encounter a lot of shadowy things and not be able to deal with all of it um, over the course of you know, not gonna just be able to wish it all away. um, Characters are going to mentally Um, have, have suffering based on their trauma, right. They're going to have, and their, their character is going to change as a result of this, right. That the things that they have been through are going to harden them and not necessarily, in a way that is for their betterment right and that's part of tolkien's point is that you know if we got a choice we would all want to live like hobbits but we need some people to be the dunedine rangers who are you know working with a pretty high shadow pool because we need those people out there to deal with the you know absolute evil of of sauron and the witch king of agmar and all that sort of stuff and i think the one ring game handles that in a in a a subtle and tasteful and um, clever way to get into this idea about kind of mental illness and and especially
1: yeah. There's a there's a somberness that pervades the Lord of the Rings. Um, yes. You can, can, can sort sure of have the elves sense of our time here is done and we need to, we and, need to and
3: the deep sense of loss <clears throat> that is inherent to yeah. almost everything that happens. And yeah. I think it goes yeah. to the characters too. It's not, it's kind of easy to recognize in the world the way that, Oh, we can't make like dope ass mithril weapons that glow in orcs are around anymore. But it yeah. also applies to all these characters that they have all, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about, um, you know, someone like, even like Boromir, right? Boromir dies in fellish. Well, as see technically, it's kind of iffy in the book, but you know, you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, The passing of Boromir is actually chapter one of Two Towers. But anyway, the point being that um, you look at kind of the stuff about Boromir or Isildur. Isildur is a great example because Isildur does all this great stuff kind of earlier on in the history and is basically only remembered in the time of the Lord of the Rings as the dude who couldn't just end it all by tossing the ring into Mount Doom and getting rid of it, even though like he literally saves like the tree of Numenor from Numenor and puts it on the boat when they flee the destruction of Numenor to kind of like save like the the symbol of this entire civilization, right? That's like the same as Ildor, Elendil's son, who and it's like the white tree of Gondor, that's like it, right? That Isildur is the one who takes that. But he's also, you know, like a wandering Adventure. He is changed God. and and marred yeah. over the course of his I, I think
1: that's that's kind of what you see in, in not in every character, but certainly in some of the yeah, I particularly think of, of Frodo and, and Aragorn as kind of the two main protagonists of the Lord of the Rings is you see mm. what makes them heroic is how they encounter shadow yeah, and remain heroic. I mean, at the end, you know, if it finally becomes too much for a uh, Frodo, but, but then Sam, I guess it's kind of the unsung. Well, but it's the story, a, there's an know.
3: important point there about the way that, you know, Frodo's resilience doesn't take him all the way, but in the way that Delta Green heroes are dependent on their community when they can't succeed yeah. themselves, right? It's important that Frodo has- Sam pulls him back. Yeah, has yeah. had Sam there yeah. the whole time and is able to kind of, you might say that the player in, in one ring terms, there's a, there's an actual bout of madness system, which is basically mm-hmm. where you're, you get too much shadow and you lose control of your character. Yeah. And it's very much described in terms of like when Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo at Ammon Hen, mm-hmm. that he is kind of, you know, does this kind of thing that he totally regrets afterwards. And he's really, you know, kind of doesn't understand where it came from in a lot of ways, but at the same time can't, right? He's been marred by this experience, right? And he arguably ends up kind of going to a a kind of last stand, you know, death moment because of his suffering at this moment. But Mm then in the same way, you could put Frodo's um, experience in the same terms that he has a sort of bout of madness with the ring at the cracks of doom and then sam is there to kind of save the day and step in and and get the job done in some ways yeah.
0: right
1: so i also um, think it's interesting that with the you know like gandalf doesn't want anybody messing with the palantir yeah because it just it, it it's so well, much and good. that's and speak partially of, because saran can see you and then he can hear what we're doing but also you see what it does to um to Boromir's father
3: to denethor well and denethor, that's yeah. uh, there's a um One last thing, I know we got to wrap up, Jason, so I'm going to let you wrap us up in a minute. But Denethor, as a character, um, one of the things that I think Tolkien does a great job in the books of is the way that a character's strength defines their weakness. And Denethor is a great example of that, that in the movie, they don't do a great job with the character of Denethor. But part of the point in the book of Denethor is that Denethor is really intelligent and actually like a pretty great leader. But he is intelligent enough to recognize that there just isn't there's just not very good odds for them. Right. That they're they're going up against the war machine from Mordor and they're going to lose unless they get really lucky. And Denethor also doesn't know about some of the things that have been set in motion with the the army of the dead and Aragorn bringing the the forces from southern Gondor up the uh, the. river and then also the writers from rohan who the messenger has been killed on the way back to gondor so denethor doesn't know about him but part of the point is that denethor has been manipulated by sauron and the palantir in some ways but it also is really based on who he is that his failure is based on his own strength in the same way that like boromir is the same way right boromir is this kind of fantastic warrior and leader and that that's you know he's you know, taken West Osgiliath back from Mordor for the first time in like hundreds of years and things like that. But that's what defines his weakness too, is that he, that's just his, his nature that he's, he's going to become this kind of tyrannical power hungry leader who is, you know, this kind of warmonger type, if he gets the ring, because that's, you know, your strength is also your weakness, which I think is something that a lot of, especially when you talk about kind of games and themes in in literature and in gaming that I think that's a really of interesting one that doesn't come across very well a lot of times right very rarely do you have a character who says no, I don't want the plus three sword because I'm worried that I might accidentally attack my friend with it. Um, I'll just take the the non-magical sword that'll be fine for me right
0: right so <laughs> so I'm gonna hop in here so uh, agreed and that's one of the geniuses of the one ring right because it, it brings some of that stuff into play is opposed D and D. So, so when we pick up next time, folks, we're going to make you wait two weeks. When we pick up next time. We're going to talk about regular D and D, and you know the idea. There are sanity rules in fifth edition D and D. They're they're. You know, but in the back of the DM, you're not in the back. But we'll, we'll talk about that next session. So, so we're going to switch over to DD and then we'll probably touch on some other systems. Free League has some really interesting systems out there. When, it, it, adjacent to Madness, right? So you have like Alien with the stress meter and things like that. So we'll yeah. probably we'll probably dive into some well, of that stuff also, next time.
3: We didn't mention, but to related to Alien, Mothership has some really clever yep. ways that horror right. is resolved.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so and, and we'll hit all those other systems next time. So. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate your taking part, and you know, good to be here. Yeah, good to be yeah. here. Excellent. It's
2: kind of it's kind of interesting. How everything, everything fantasy always boils down to Tolkien.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, well Tolkien yeah. and Howard, right? Well, Tolkien and Howard like, are okay. two,
3: the two main, right? Yeah, they're, I they're guess are the two main traditions, right? That you have the the pulpy heroic stuff yeah. and the kind of more literary, more medieval influenced kind of grand fantasy and then Uh you've got stuff that kind of takes from one or the other, but right. You talk about like um, the Brandon Sanderson stuff that people go crazy about nowadays, that is, is basically like Tolkien's scale, but with Howardian concepts in a lot of ways, because it's totally this kind of power fantasy, heroic ridiculousness. It just happens to be in a structure that is much closer to the kind of grand epic of Tolkien's vision than the kind of short, Short stories of Howard's yeah. work.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay, folks, we, we will. Or, did you have something else quick? Oh, I'll just say or?
1: you, you kind of you have fantasy before token and fantasy after token. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, you you have science fiction before we, should, Dune we should do and an science episode afternoon.
3: William Morris. <laughs> that would be a ton of fun. Jason, let's put that on the schedule. We're gonna do an episode on this The Hollow Land.
2: Although I don't know, I might, I might say it science fiction before Asimov and after Asimov. True, true. Yeah, there's,
0: yeah there's a couple of... <laughs> yeah. well, there's, so those will be topics for future days. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, folks, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. You're counting down your last as you admire that oh, cause is I'm sleeping,
1: right? I'm all The something that's to i But I am mean this issue As from That's
2: you can can it, you it any Just never
1: just seen, play, on the moon, Yeah I got to I got to I got to go pee. <laughs> yeah yeah. Well, I'm I'm
2: I'll open fantasy grounds so people can jump on it looks like